Uh, when I graduated high school, it was 1992. That's kind of depressing to even say that out loud. Just give me a moment. Uh, anyway, it's been a long time ago, but uh, that year, uh, this, unobscure, or this obscure band called the Hathaways came out with a song that was like a one-hit wonder. And uh, you might recognize the opening line of it. It says like this, what is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me no more. You probably heard that line a bunch. It'll probably be stuck in your mind all the whole day. Oh yeah, I can sing, but I can't dance because along with that song, there was like this little head bob thing that became popular with Saturday Night Live. Chris Kattan and Will Ferrell, they started uh, this little skit and these two brothers would go around from nightclub to nightclub looking for love. And I would say in all the wrong places, right? But they never seemed to find it. But this skit became so popular in 1998, they made a movie about these two brothers. It was called Night at the Roxbury. And they went around with this song pumping in the background, doing that little head bob. I've seen some of you doing the bob, so you know what I'm talking about, right? So uh, that's, I mean, just crazy. Uh, that head bob is a little obnoxious, pretty funny. But if I ask you the question, what is love? I mean, there might be lots of things that kind of rattle around in your brain, right? Uh, today, I want to propose that God being the answer to that question might be the end of your quest in looking for it. We're kicking off a new series today, and it, what we've done with the book of John is we've broken the J book of John up into some volumes, and we're starting volume two today, and we've entitled this volume, An Invitation. It's an invitation to experience love like you've never experienced before. Maybe to find love in a place that you've been looking for all of your life. I think that an invitation is actually maybe more of a proposal because I believe that God's love is greater than any of the lesser loves that you and I have often settled for. In this new series, we're actually going to pick up right where we left off last week in John chapter 3. Ross Langston, our youth pastor, began a conversation with us that surrounded this interaction, this encounter that a guy named Nicodemus had with Jesus. It's in John chapter 3, so you can turn there with me if you have your own Bible or if you have a, want to use the one in the, the seat back in front of you or on a digital device. Jesus meets this guy named Nicodemus, and he was a religious man. He was actually a religious teacher, a Pharisee. He knew the Jewish law and he knew the Jewish teachings and he was trying to figure out where does Jesus fit into all of that. He was a religious man, but he did not have a relationship with Jesus yet. And so Jesus sat down with him and when, when Nicodemus came to him at night, he had a pocket full of questions. And so Jesus began to unpack with him things about the kingdom of God. He talked about the things of heaven. He explained to him his mission and his identity he told him about being born again, both of water and spirit. And poor Nicodemus' brain just was spinning. There's a lot of information to take in. And then Jesus springs on him a picture of love. He said the greatest picture of love could be a snake on a pole. Now, I don't know if that says love to you, but it was in the context of this conversation that Jesus begins to unpack God's love. Ross looked at these, last, uh, these two verses last week, 14 and 15 of chapter 3. But let's read them again today because I think they set the context of what Jesus talks about next. John 3 verse 14 and 15 says this, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Jesus is telling Nicodemus that being born again is not about entering your mother's womb a second time but instead is about placing your faith 
in who Jesus is. That's what gives you eternal life. That's what brings you the greatest love that you could ever find. Maybe the greatest love that you would ever experience. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 7, John says this, God is love. What does God's love look like? Well, I think if we look through the rest of John 3 that we're going to focus on today, we'll begin to see some pictures of what God's love looks like. Some scholars believe that John 3 verses 16 and through 21 are actually John's words, John's commentary about what Jesus has just been explaining to Nicodemus. Some people think it's a direct quote of Jesus. Regardless, I hope that all of us will come to understand that God's love is greater than any lesser love that the world can provide. What is love? God is love and he gives us new life. Look what it says in John 3, verse 16. Do you even probably need to look? You maybe have heard that verse since you were a wee lad, right? It's the most popular verse in the entire Bible, the most quoted verse in the entire Bible. But I also would propose it's maybe the most underappreciated verse in the entire Bible. One of the things I've enjoyed since becoming the pastor here is going over to the Branchville prison. I try to go there once a month with a group of volunteers from here at Crossroads. And so this past Tuesday night, I took a trip over to Branchville and we do two things when we're there. We play basketball for an hour, which is not my greatest moment. And then the second hour, we actually unpack God's word together. And what we do is we just read scripture and we ask the participants to share what verse kind of sticks out to them. What verse means the most to them? And so the other night we were reading John 2 and John 3. And so as we read that, we asked participants, which verses are speaking to you? And several of the guys started to share, probably eight or 10 deep, when somebody raised their hand and said, I guess we should mention John 3, 16, shouldn't we? I mean, it's the most famous book, or it's the famous verse in the entire Bible. And he said this, it's what the whole book's about, right? He knows what he's talking about. John 3, 16 is what the whole book is about. So why don't you read with me, or if you want to say it from memory, you're welcome. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. God loves us so much that he provides for us new life. And Jesus explains this by focusing on this moment in Israel's history of a snake on a pole. He, tell, he reminds Nicodemus that there was this moment in the, when the people of Israel were going through the wilderness. They were depending on God for everything. And yet they came to this point, they became grumbly, complaining. Maybe that's never happened to you, but it's happened to me on several family vacations, right? And so God punishes the people of Israel by sending poisonous snakes among them. And when the snakes start to bite the people of Israel, Moses cries out to God, says, help us. And he says, okay, make a bronze serpent and put it on a pole and have people look to that. And Jesus says to Nicodemus, in the same way, when I am lifted up and people place their faith on me, they have life, they have new life, they have eternal life. Just like looking at this bronze snake on a pole, looking to Jesus and believing in him brings life. And John uses this phrase eternal life. It's one of the themes we've seen already in the book of John, and we'll see it continually. John speaks like 17 times on this topic of eternal life. 
And John says that as Jesus is lifted up so that people can believe in him, they'll have eternal life. And eternal life is both a reference to life and eternity, but also the quality and character of life that we can experience right here today. We do not have to wait till we die to experience this kind of life. It's found in Jesus. And this new life brings hope and meaning and clarity of purpose. It brings uh, just a deeper sense of love and relationships. It also brings this desire to be obedient. And we'll, we'll fully experience those things in heaven, but we can experience them now as well. John indicates that Jesus, that God so loved the world the word world is used in many different contexts throughout the book of John. But in this moment, he's actually referring to people who make up fallen humanity. And what John is saying, what Jesus is saying is that God's love is indiscriminate. God's love is universal. It's not narrow to a certain type of people. And it's not certainly just for good people, but it's for even those people who feel like they've messed up. Jesus says later in one of the gospels, he says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, it's the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but I've come to call sinners. John Piper says this, God's love is spoken to and promised to and applied to everyone without exception. There's no limits to this offer. It goes out to all people of every ethnic group, of every age, of every social economic category. And best of all, to every degree of sinner, from bad to worse. God loves you. His love is for you, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done. And there's a major thing that runs throughout John, actually it runs throughout entire scripture, and that's this. God doesn't want anybody to perish. He wants all people to be saved, to believe in his son and experience life, new life, eternal life. What is love? Well, God is love, and he gives us his very best. I don't know if you found yourself disappointed this past week at the gift that your significant other gave to you on behalf of Valentine's Day. In case you felt a little maybe unsatisfied, I thought this ad I found this week might help you gain some perspective. Check it out. If you had no idea what to get her for Valentine's Day, imagine how overwhelming arranging her funeral would be. Look what it says underneath. It says, give her the perfect gift. Make prearrangements as a couple with the affordable funeral home. Nothing says till death do us part than arranging a funeral for Valentine's Day, right? Wow. How did God express his love to us? Well, it was more than snake on a pole, people. He gave us his best. He gave us his one and only son. Some translations say his begotten son. And begotten means that, that Jesus was special to God that he was his chosen son. He was unique. He was his only son that the father had. And yet, think about that sacrifice. God had experienced communion with Jesus for all eternity. And yet there came this one day, he sent him to earth, not just to have a good time, but to die. God sent Jesus to die a human death so that you and I could be saved. God sacrificed Jesus for you so that you and I would not perish, so that we would not die. The first and only other reference to this one and only son in scripture is actually used to describe the relationship that Abraham had with his first son, Isaac. 
You might remember the story from the Old Testament. It's found in Genesis chapter 22, where Abraham and Sarah had prayed to God for a child. They had waited their entire life for a child. Even when you don't see that he's working, even when you don't feel that he's working, he never stops working. He never stops working. And then came that day when Abraham and Sarah had a baby, a baby boy. They named him Isaac. And when he was 10 to 12 years old, God said to Abraham, take that son, your only son, to a mountain called Moriah and sacrifice him to me there. What a tall order for Abraham. And yet he obeyed. He grabbed his son, took him on the journey. He took wood. He took a knife. He went up the top of the mountain. He bound his son. He built an altar. He put the son on the altar and he raised the knife. That's how far Abraham went through with it. And yet he was distracted by some noise in a bush. And when he looked over, he saw a ram, a lamb. And God substituted that lamb for Isaac. In the same way, God took this one and only son of his and made him a substitute for you and me so that we wouldn't have to die. Just like the lamb was a sacrifice or excuse me, a substitute for Isaac, Jesus is our substitute. He took the punishment of our sin so that we could be saved. God's love motivated his plan for salvation. Salvation originated from God, but you and I have to receive God's love. You and I have to accept this invitation. It's a choice. John says that God so loved the entire world, especially those who've messed up, but it's only those who believe who will have eternal life. It's not, belief is not just some passing thought. It's not just some casual acknowledgement. It's not just knowing a couple Bible verses from when you were a kid, but belief is choosing to follow. It's a commitment. It is a relationship with Jesus. It's living through Jesus. I think that's what John unpacks in 1 John 4, verses 9 and 10. He says this, this is love, how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we may live through him or by him, with him. This is love, John says, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. The Apostle Paul follows up with that to share with us how we can receive this invitation, how we can choose to place our faith in Jesus. And he says this, Romans 10 verse 9, if you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Our profession of faith in who Jesus is and that his death is a substitute for our punishment, that he died on the cross but he came back to life that secures our salvation. That's an incredible truth. And John uses this word perish to speak of death, an eternal death, an eternal death in hell. And hell's not a popular teaching around most churches today, but it's nonetheless still real. Dying without believing in Jesus means that a person will result in going to hell. It's a real place and you really don't want to go there. And so John 3, 16 is clear. There's two options. There's perishing or eternal death, or there's living, which is eternal life. And all of us will die someday. And your belief or your lack of belief in Jesus determines where you go. There's no third option. There's no other way to heaven except through faith in Jesus Christ. And that's the most loving truth that I could ever share with you today. What is love? Well, God is love. 
And he gives us salvation. You can't separate John 3, 17 and 18 from John 3, 16. So let's look what it says. It says, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they've not believed in the name of God's one and only son. This verse reinforces this theme that we see throughout scripture, that God wants all people to be saved. Ezekiel 18 verse 23 says, it's God speaking. He says, do I take pleasure in the death of the wicked? The obvious answer is no, because he made a way for us not to die. 1 Timothy 2, 4 says, God wants all men to be saved. And 2 Peter 3, 9 says, God's patient. He doesn't want anyone to perish. He wants all people to come to repentance. God sent Jesus to save us, not condemn us. He was on a rescue mission, not a kill and destroy mission. He didn't send Jesus into the world to send us to hell. He sent us here so we would go to heaven, not to condemn the world, but to save the world. Other translations render this verse, they, God didn't send Jesus into the world to judge the world. And some people question, well, isn't Jesus the judge? Well, yes, scripture is very clear that Jesus does have permission to judge. He is the son of God and he is the son of man, which allows him the entitlement to be the judge. And while he will and can judge, that wasn't his purpose in coming the first time. It will be the second time. This first time, he came with one mission, and that was to bring salvation. And the world's divided into two groups, those who believe and those who don't believe. Later in John chapter 5, verse 27, Jesus says that he has authority from the Father to judge. Those who choose not to believe in him will be judged and condemned. That's the bad news. But it doesn't have to be that way. That's the good news. God sent Jesus so that we wouldn't have to die, so that we wouldn't be condemned. That's why Paul says in Romans 8 verse 1, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Condemnation is our fate unless we choose to believe in Jesus, unless we have a settled, continued conviction about Jesus. You truly believe in him. You find life in his name. Human choice is critical to the salvation experience. Yes, God gives salvation, but we must accept it. We must receive it. We must accept the invitation so that we will be saved. God sent Jesus as a bridge to our salvation. He's the true agent of God's salvation. He's the true demonstration of God's salvation, of God's unmer unmerited and unequatable love. Jesus is the method for our salvation. Everyone must make a choice. Receive the invitation or reject the invitation. Trust and follow Jesus or trust and follow a lesser love. All of us have pursued lesser loves. Some of us have chosen money over God's love. Some of us have chosen relationships over God's love. Some of us have chosen popularity or position. All of us settle for these lesser loves. And so I would encourage you this coming week, take out your journal and just do some real personal inventory about those things in your life that seem to grab your affection. Many of these things are not wrong, like your family or your job or even just being in shape or, or a good diet. None of those things are wrong, but often they take precedent in our heart and they root out the thing that 
loves us the most, the person who loves us the most, and that's God. What is love? Well, God is love, and he gives us light to live by. Look what John 3, verse 19 and 20 through 21 says. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light. They won't come into the light because they have fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so, that they, so it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. My name is Phil. I'm almost 46 years old and I'm still scared of the dark. Doesn't probably give you a lot of confidence as your pastor to know that he's scared of the dark. He's a little chicken when he leaves here at night and has to walk out to his car in the parking lot. I was home last night alone. My family's away for the weekend and like I kept lights on in the house that are not normally on because if there was a creek in the night, I wanted to make sure I knew what was going to get me, you know? This kind of came to a head a couple of years ago. I was on a, a, a trip with my daughter and we were spelunking, which means we were going through caves. And that was really cool. I did a brave thing. I let her carry the flashlight until those big cavernous areas got more narrow and got smaller and to a place it was getting darker and we had to get down and start crawling. And uh, I could feel my blood pressure start to rise. I could feel my heart starting to beat faster. My hands were getting sweaty. And so I made an executive decision. It came out like this, give me the light. And I grabbed it <laughs> from her hands, right? And just by having the flashlight in my hand, I could just feel like, just this relaxed feeling coming over me. When I could shine the light on the places I was going, the fear seemed to stop. Well, that idea of light and darkness is not just new to me. It's not news to me. It's actually something that John has in throughout his entire gospel. We saw it from the very beginning in John chapter one. And this idea is not really new to him. Most people believe he was borrowing from a group of people called the Essenes. They were religious people and they actually were kind of curators of the Dead Sea Scrolls, which is very important to all the authenticness, authenticity of God's word, especially the New Testament. And it's in those documents, the Dead Sea Scrolls, that we see this idea of, of light being associated with God and darkness being associated with evil. In fact, it describes people as being sons of light or sons of darkness. And so John picks up on this theme and, and shows that the things of God are represented by light. The things of the evil are filled with darkness. The Lexham Theological Workbook speaks about this and it says this. Physically, light and darkness exist in opposition. Light as an energy source provides illumination. It leads to the ability to make visual distinctions among colors and physical objects. Darkness is the absence of light and color, whether as a place or a condition, and results in disorientation, distortion, and confusion. That happens both physically, but also spiritually as well. John indicates that the world that Jesus came to was dark. It was filled with evil. People were blinded by the dark. They didn't want to come into the light because their deeds were evil. They had an inclination toward sin. And so when Jesus came as the light, people rejected him because they were ashamed of their deeds, especially the religious leaders. Mankind has a tendency to worship the created instead of the creator. And that's an example of us settling for lesser loves. 
The world had no knowledge of Jesus. They were living in darkness. And when they rejected him, they chose to just waller in the darkness out of distortion, out of disorientation. And some of you know the feeling. Some of you have been to some very dark places. Maybe places you thought you would never end up going or finding yourself. And you did that probably out of the pursuit of being loved or to love. And some of you have found yourself ashamed. Some of you have found yourself alone. Some of you have found yourself fearful, like the walls are caving or closing in on you. You're hopeless. And it's because of the darkness that surrounds you. Some of you have even just begun to waller in that darkness. In contrast to those feelings where you find yourself, Jesus represents light. His light illuminates the world with his radiance, his holiness, his purity, his essence, his splendor, his perfection. Jesus makes this claim in John 8, verse 12. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness. They will have the light of life. This light is blessing, it's truth, it's righteousness, it's godliness, it's morality. Light's connected to the day because it's hard to be uh, hidden in the day. Those who are evil, they hate the light. They want to persist in their disobedience. But God sent Jesus to expose sin, to create change in our lives, to bring things under God's illumination. Light is good. It, it represents the character of those who believe. It should be our state of being once we've declared that Jesus is our Savior and Lord. We live in the light. We walk in the light. And we shine the light. Gerald Borchert says this. According to John, what one does reflects who one is. Darkness, hating, and doing evil together are set against light and living the truth and the works done through God. Although you and I are saved through faith, God does care about our deeds, our works. What we do reflects who we are. God sent Jesus to shine light in our world. So the question is, are we reflecting that light? When people encounter us, do they see darkness or do they see light? John says that this light is equal to truth. It's truth to live by. And this truth refers to something that is truthful, sincere, something that holds integrity. I love that picture. Truth is a state of being real and being genuine. And it's attractive to people. When we feel somebody's being deceptive or has deceived us, we're often repelled or repulsed by that. There's no falseness in truth. It's pure, it's right, it's good. And so that's why Jesus and John says, live by the light, live by the truth of God. So that means acting faithfully, acting honorably, living in obedience, doing what's right, being thoroughly tested by God and standing approved. How do we do that? Well, Paul gives us a little bit of indication. Romans 12, two, he says this, do not conform to the pattern of this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. People living in the light, living by the truth, they are living in God's perfect will. And people, when they see that, should be attracted to us. More importantly, they should be attracted to this true source of light, and that's Jesus himself. And John says it's obvious when people are living that way. It's obvious because it's obvious that God is doing it. Just like salvation 
Every good thing that comes from us is also a gift of love. You know, all this talk about John is not so that we could be smarter as Christians. It's actually purposeful in helping us learn to live and love like Jesus. And we just don't want to talk about it for 30 minutes up front from this stage. We're trying to provide resources so that all of us can grow in our living and loving like Jesus. One of those resources is tonight, right here in this room at 6 p.m. We're having our first teaching night. And tonight we just want to unpack how do we make space in our already overcrowded life to live and love like Jesus. Or better said, how can we learn to choose this greater love instead of settling for all these lesser loves? I would encourage you to come tonight. We're actually going to kick off an experience for us over the next 40 days leading up to Easter. It's the season of Lent. And, and some of you might have some preconceived notions about what Lent is or what it isn't. Let me say what it isn't. It's not posting on social media, not eating chocolate this month for Lent. Or like, hey, you have to call me right now because I've, I'm going off social media for Lent. I mean, that might be what God prompts you to do. But Lent is so much more than that. Really, all it is is trying to create space in our lives to intentionally live the way that Jesus does. The way to love like Jesus does. I, I would encourage you to be here tonight to learn how we can do that together. And also this whole initiative to, to transform a village is what happens when we've experienced the love from God. We have to share it with others. And this is just a tangible way for us to be part of something. Maybe to people we'll never ever meet, but it's because God loves them too. And we could make a small sacrifice so that his big love would be felt in a very tangible way. I was a teenager the first time I started sponsoring a kid. I had lawn mowing money and a few little odd jobs, but I made a deliberate decision to just put that to good use. And I'm no saint, trust me, but it's taught me a lot about how much God loves me by learning how to love like him. And I need to continue to learn how to do that. And maybe you do too. And if so, I would encourage you to lean into that. God is love and he loves you. It's a love that maybe you've never experienced before. It might be a love that you've been looking for all your life. It's a love that meets you where you are, but loves you way too much to let you stay there. John Piper writes this. God wants you to know yourselves loved. Not only with this universal type of love from John 3.16, but also with his death conquering, hardness removing, rebellion eradicating, sight imparting, faith creating, personal, individual, invincible covenant love of which you are so absolutely undeserving. What changed Nicodemus's heart and life that day was not a new idea or some new founded thought. It was that he experienced a love like he had never encountered before. God's love can give you a new life, a new start. It can give you rebirth. It can help you find eternal life that will never leave you or forsake you, nor will it ever run out. And it's not a cheap love. God gave you his very best, his only son, so he could express his love to you. He'd rather watch his own son die than to watch you go to hell and sit back and do nothing. And his love is salvation. It's life to the fullest here on earth, as well as life in eternity in heaven when this life here on earth is over. And his life provides light and truth 
for you to live by. It's real, it's true, it's trustworthy, it's sure. And as we walk in this light and in his love, others see Jesus living in us. God saves you because he loves you. And that's the greatest expression of love you will ever find. It's an invitation worth accepting. It's like no other. So don't settle for lesser loves. Let's pray together. God, I need your love. I've looked for love in lots of places. Many of those have just left me empty or with regrets, dissatisfied. God, when I understood that you love me no matter what, that I didn't have to earn it or even grasp all of it, God, I began to understand a different type of love. God, it feels like I'm trying to hug a redwood, like there is no way I could ever truly understand why you would give up your only son for somebody like me, somebody incapable of doing it right, incapable of even obeying, God, incapable of so much, yet you knew that. And that's why you expressed your love to me in this way, by dying a death for me, by giving me your Holy Spirit, by letting me be an heir with Christ, letting me have the security of knowing I was in heaven for eternity. And God, I'm gr grateful. God, I, I want to live differently because of that kind of love. God, I want my family and my neighbors and my coworkers and the people I meet uh, along the way of life, I want them to see a different kind of love that isn't in me, it's, it's through me, it's from you. God, I pray that you would help all of us understand, begin to grasp that we settle so much for salt water instead of fresh water when we choose these lesser loves. And God, I pray you begin to show us more and more how much you love us. And the result of that would be that our lives would love you in response, would live for you in response and be a conduit of your love in this community, God, in this world. I pray that people would be drawn to you because of that. I ask for your help in that through the power of the Holy Spirit. And in the name of Jesus, amen.